I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing China's nuclear modernization through a comparative lens. How does China's growing nuclear arsenal compare to that of the United States, Russia, India, and other nuclear powers? How does Beijing's strategy differ? What is China's approach to nuclear arms control, and what are the implications for strategic stability? Here to dig into these issues is Dr. Hans Christensen, director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists. Hans provides the public with analysis and background information about the status of nuclear forces and the role of nuclear weapons using the Freedom of Information Act. He is co-author of the Nuclear Notebook column in the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists and the World Nuclear Forces Overview in the CIPRI Yearbook. Hans, thank you for joining me today. Thanks very much for having me. So I'd like to structure our discussion today through several big buckets, but first to talk about China's actual nuclear capabilities. I think it will be useful to begin by contrasting the overall size of China's nuclear stockpile with that of the United States and Russia's and just the range of capabilities China has. Can you give us a sense of how you would compare China to the United States and Russia with respect to their overall nuclear capabilities? First of all, I mean, China comes from a nuclear past, one in which it was not very engaged at all in sort of what you could call this uh, typical competition or more in-depth competition between the Soviet Union and later Russia and the United States. So that has colored its nuclear capabilities on the nuclear posture. That said, of course, the Chinese have always wanted to have a nuclear arsenal that was in their view, secure and capable of responding sufficiently to uh, attacks. And that is now beginning to change. Normally, they have been sort of around a couple of hundred nuclear weapons in their stockpile and a limited number of missiles to deliver them, very limited ballistic missile submarine capability, and almost no bomber capability. Recently, we've seen a change where they're moving to build up significantly specifically the land-based portion of their arsenal. We can get into the details, but if you look at it overall, so that's basically where we see the differences between China, Russia, and the United States, typically, that both the United States and Russia have a very large force of land-based ballistic missiles and ballistic missile submarines and strategic bombers, completely integrated in, in, in strategic war planning over many, many decades. China is now beginning to come up. And so right now we, we estimate, so are the numbers that we hear out there, but also sort of what we can observe on the ground via, for example, commercial satellite imagery in, in, in terms of their base structure and that type of stuff, that they have something on in the order of around 500 nuclear weapons in their stockpile. Compared to the United States and Russia, it's a lot smaller. The United States has about something on the order of 3,700 nuclear warheads in its stockpile, and Russia perhaps 4,300-something in that range, depending on how you count it. There is a great deal of uncertainty, both on the Chinese and the Russian side, about exactly how much and how one counts it. And the U.S. is a great deal more transparent, but we've seen in the last three years that there's also been an increase in the U.S. secrecy about its stockpile number, it has not been released since 2020. So 
So that's sort of overall how it falls. Thank you, Hans. As we compare China's modernization effort with that of other countries, China is still significantly behind the United States and Russia. Across the board, as you mentioned, China's nuclear capabilities are not nearly as sophisticated or integrated. What is China prioritizing as it seeks to improve its nuclear program? Is it the land-based components, or is China prioritizing development across the triad? Yeah, in terms of the nuts and bolts, so to speak, it's definitely the land-based forces that are being prioritized. This is where we, beyond comparison to anything else happening in the Chinese arsenal, is seeing a, an expansion of the number of long-range intercontinental ballistic missile launchers, whether they are silos, that's where we see most of the expansion, but also road mobile systems. China typically has also had a large force or relatively large force of medium or intermediate range, sort of theater capabilities, if you will, that are in, that were intended for engaging U.S., Russian, and Indian targets that are closer by. And so, you know, you could think of Guam or U.S. bases elsewhere in the region, for example. That force has also increased significantly. It's a little more difficult to judge it because especially in terms of the intermediate range system that is now taking over in the nuclear role, that system is a dual cable system. So it's very hard to figure out how many warheads are actually assigned to that force, assuming that since it's dual capable, they may not necessarily assign a nuclear war to every single launcher. It could be that most of them perhaps, or half of them or whatever the situation is, that they have a focus on a conventional mission and then a smaller number on the nuclear. But so that's just to emphasize here, that's a lot of uncertainty in, in the Chinese force structuring. Also important for them now, of course, is that they now sort of finally have a ballistic missile submarine force, somewhat limited, six ballistic missile submarines. And they're relatively uh, noisy by U.S. and Russian standards. And uh, But they're building, uh, you know, more advanced systems for those submarines. They will build up a bit that force, probably not significantly over the next decade and a half, but some. Um, and then we're seeing that the bomber force is getting much more attention. It is being sort of upgraded to an active nuclear bomber force. And right now, most of the focus is on sort of an air launch ballistic missile that might have nuclear capability. But you can imagine in the future, not so far into the future that you might also see China deciding to have air-launched uh, cruise missiles with nuclear capability, like like Russia and the United States already have. So it's a, it's a broad modernization, but I will definitely say that most of the focus is on the land-based ballistic missile force. And why is that? Why is the focus on the land-based? Because Is it because it's easier to control than, uh, for example, submarines that might be more difficult to maintain command and control? Or why is China missing so much on the land-based force? Well, so there are, there are a lot of uncertainties about why China is doing what it's doing. They don't say much about it, and it's hard to get a conversation going with people that know about it. So there's a fair amount of speculation. Most of what we hear, we get sort of predominantly from military agencies in other countries. And that is a lens that is a little risky to look through because, of course, military intelligence is supposed to look for enemies and threats. And so it can be harder to trust that there is a sort of a, what do you could say, conservative assessment of what's going on that, that involves other aspects. And so, but, but it's unfortunate we don't hear much from the Chinese uh, about it. 
It is possible that it's a combination of factors. It's most likely that it is. There's an element of it, of course, that has to do with what function do the ballistic missiles on land serve? And in the past, they've had relatively few of them compared to Russia and the United States. They've clearly decided that that's not enough. The reason is, is that because of national prestige? Is it because of concern about how vulnerable they are to Russian and U.S. attacks? Or or is it something about military or institutional or national prestige? Lots more money. You want to be a big power and therefore you build up forces that are visible or a combination of all of that. These are some of the difficult questions that are hard to answer. But there's no, no doubt that whatever the reason is, the motivation has certainly changed them into building a force structure that is unlike anything we've ever seen in China before. Let's compare China's modernization efforts with what the United States and Russia are doing. Is it correct to say that China is focused mainly on modernizing its land-based forces, whereas the United States and Russia are modernizing more across the board, across the triad? Well, they're all uh, modernizing all their aspects of their posture, but the Chinese posture looks different than, than Russia and, China and the United States. Like we discussed most by far in terms of numbers of the modernization is happening and the emphasis is happening on the land-based ballistic missiles. Russia and the United States are also modernizing their land-based ballistic missiles. These modernization cycles happen not necessarily at the same time. It all depends on what priorities the different countries have, but also when they introduce their missile systems and how long can they last, what kind of quality do they have. So these cycles don't happen at the same time necessarily. Russia has been very busy modernizing its entire ICBM force since the late 1990s. And they're now something in the order of, I would say, 85%, perhaps a little more, done with that. We still need to see some of the, the big old multiple warhead systems like the SS-18 be replaced. That is only beginning to happen now. But it's, it's well underway. The United States is just now beginning its modernization of its ICBMs. But that's because it has upgraded them previously and life extended them, etc. But now they're shifting gears and we're seeing a very expensive and large program to replace the whole thing. And the same thing, of course, with ballistic missile submarines and, you know, both in Russia and the United States, we see this continuous upgrade of the systems, enhancement to the ballistic missiles with their warheads, but also when old types get too old, we see a new class coming in. Russia has their new class, the Bore class, that has been building for several years and will continue to build for the next decade too. The United States is beginning to build its class of Columbia-class ballistic missile submarines that are scheduled to replace the existing Ohio class. I think the first one is supposed to sail out there sometime in 2031. And then on the bombers, both of them are modernizing. The U.S. is doing it in a more advanced way, you could say. It is introducing a whole new bomber, the B-21, that's going to replace the conventional B-1 bomber, and also the relatively small numbers of B-2 stealth bombers. Russia, on the other hand, is, is sort of taking old aircraft they have and either upgrading them or putting them a, through a significant sort of life extension facelift 
They are working on a new, completely new type, but it remains to be seen when, when that is going to start test flying because their industry is pretty constrained right now. But that's sort of the basic lay of the land here for how they approach it compared to the United States and Russia. In D.C., we constantly hear the assessment that China is rapidly and aggressively modernizing its nuclear force. But as you lay out, it seems the United States and Russia are also moving quite fast in their nuclear modernization efforts, too. So how would you compare the pace of modernization between China compared to the United States or Russia? Yes, you're correct that they're all modernizing. (laughs) Nuclear powers, (laughs) when they have nuclear weapons, they are modernizing and You have systems and you rely on them from time to time. They have to be upgraded. And then you can have uh, new political situations where things change or get more tense. And then suddenly agencies begin to argue and advocate for additional capabilities, et cetera, et cetera. So I say that the most significant difference in the way that the Chinese and and the United States and Russia are doing these right now is just that the, the Chinese numerical modernization, its increase of its force is significantly different compared to what the United States and Russia are doing. Although there are some increases in certain categories of Russian uh, nuclear forces, overall, it's not something that fundamentally rocks the boat. And the same thing in the United States, there are some people who advocate for getting some new weapons, including a nuclear cruise missile for the attack submarines. But, But overall, the modernization is by and large upgrading the existing structure, if you will. So, so that's the difference, I would say, main difference in the way the Chinese go about this compared to Russia and the United States. Let me now shift gears. There's reporting, including from our Department of Defense, that China is interested in tactical nuclear weapons. What is happening on this front? Yeah, one has to be a little careful about the tactical because, you know, Tactical nuclear weapons in the historical sense, in terms of the way the United States and the Soviet Union did this, was that tactical nuclear weapons were sort of battlefield weapons. They were weapons that were intended to go out and fight other nuclear forces in regional limited scenarios. I mean, they could be big, but compared to global nuclear war, it was somewhat somewhat limited. The Chinese hadn't really done that. But they have the very first weapons that the Chinese had. They were, of course, medium range and later intermediate range weapons. And in some literature we see from, for example, the U.S. intelligence community, the military intelligence community, they describe Chinese medium uh, range uh, nuclear capable forces as tactical, even though they're not, strictly speaking, developed to function as sort of a tactical weapon in a, a regional war. It's just that some targets are further away than others. But of course, as arsenals begin to increase, and they get more resources, and there, there's more emphasis put on, on how the nuclear arsenal should function, it is likely, of course, that you will see some modifications of it. Right now, what's happening in sort of what <laughs> some people call the tactical nuclear weapons or non-strategic nuclear weapons of, of, of China is in the medium and intermediate range. So in the intermediate range, we have we can see the overwhelming focus is on this system that's called the DF-26. That is a intermediate range dual capable force or a ballistic missile that's road mobile. They have a large number of those, about 250 launchers and I think 300 uh, missiles, if I remember correctly, but it's in that order. 
But that is now replacing what used to be a ballistic missile with a medium range, which was called the DF-21. So we see some reorganization there of the Chinese regional forces. One speculation is whether the Chinese now will begin to put sort of warheads on this system that have lower yields. And this is a difficult conversation because lower yield is pretty much anything less than the big yield they originally had. Lower yield doesn't necessarily mean low yield, like down to very few kiloton of explosive power. So one has to be a little careful what that means. It could simply be, of course, that they they want to have a warhead on, on this system that is not overly dirty in terms of collateral damage, depending on where they're going to operate it. But it could, of course, also be that the Chinese are beginning slowly to entertain potential scenarios where they're envisioning sort of a stepping up of the escalation ladder where you begin with these shorter range missiles and then you gradually escalate if if the deterrence signaling or 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 the war fighting or whatever is going on at that point if it doesn't work that you can sort of escalate further from that into a use of longer range systems so we will have to see how that is playing out but just to emphasize here there's a lot of uncertainty in exactly what we're seeing let's unpack these potential scenarios that you mentioned when you say that the escalation ladder could start with shorter range missiles and then move up to longer range systems, is it shorter range missiles with low yield warheads or is it shorter range missiles plus larger yield warheads? I'm trying to understand what exactly is on this ladder. Yeah, we don't know how, at least in public, how the Chinese are structuring that force in terms of exactly what the war capabilities are. All we hear are these rumors that you know, there's conversation, there's chatter going on inside the Chinese expert community and, and military establishment about what would such a capability look like and what is needed and all that kind of stuff. But it's not something that they have deployed yet. It's not something that we have heard is sort of imminent. And it could be that potentially that the warhead that they currently have is considered a little too powerful or that more accurate capabilities of the delivery system, the ballistic missile itself, allows them to lower the yield. So they are not, so it's not necessary for them to have such a high yield anymore. So this, these are some of the uncertainties that we're seeing here. But we know from reports about the Chinese nuclear testing program in the past that they have worked on a variety of different systems, including what was described by the U.S. intelligence community as tactical weapons, also for for very short-range ballistic missiles. But it is believed that those capabilities were developed, but put on the shelf, so to speak, and, and not fielded into the force at the time. So it could potentially be that you see some capabilities that were developed at that time that they might reconsider to add to the force, for example. But again, this is all speculation. We really do not have a very good picture of what's going on there. Hans, you mentioned that China is making quite a bit of progress on the DF-26. What is the current yield of a warhead on a DF-26? Yeah, we don't know. I mean, really, we really don't know what the yield is. We are, we are speculating that it might be typically sort of from 100 to 200, maybe more, depending on what the mission is and what the system is. But we have really no reference point for this. This is very opaque. All 
one one way we can sort of gauge is to think about how did the, the Russians and the United States do this when they developed warheads for their systems? Of course, the bottom line in terms of military requirements is whatever the yield is, it has to be sufficient to what it is that the military planners envision that that warhead has to destroy. So uh, if that system is not very accurate, then you tend to have a larger warhead on it that can compensate for the inaccuracy. But if you get a system that is more accurate, it allows the planners to lower the, the yield, the requirement for that system. And so if, if a system like the DF-26 is supposed to knock out Guam, like the, the military facilities in Guam or some U.S. base facility in Okinawa or whatever the, the system is, a more accurate system would allow them, of course, to lower the yield somewhat. But it still requires quite a punch to be able to knock out a, a large area facility like an air base or something like that. So, so, so I would sort of caution little against sort of thinking of this as, as very low yield warheads. It's, it's more a question of, of modifying the yield to what is militarily required, I think. And when you say a range of 100 to 200, you mean 200 kilotons. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, okay. it's one of these areas where we really don't know, like I said, but but you can assume that that might have been a fair estimate up until now, and then we'll see where it goes. But again, we're just very cautious to sort of make specific <laughs> statements about that uh, without emphasizing that. The, the significant certainty that that exists here. Since what warhead yield and delivery vehicles China chooses is dependent on the target that China is trying to hit, we should also discuss what China views as appropriate targets. You mentioned potentially Guam and U.S. military facilities on Okinawa, but right now, as you look at Chinese writings on the use of nuclear weapons. Are you seeing the priority being a strategic use, or are you seeing more emphasis on battlefield purposes? And if it's for battlefield purposes, what have Chinese experts listed out as potential targets beyond fixed military bases or facilities? Well, so it's a bit of an all in the sense that uh, the, the emphasis is definitely on the strategic mission of the weapons, focused, of course, on the United States, some side planning for Russia, and, and then, of course, for the Chinese, India is also a potential factor. And so in the regional scenarios, they have always, going way back, of course, had planning for regional missiles with medium range and intermediate range against base facilities in the region. We don't know really if, if they would go after cities per se. I mean, in the past, this has been an assumption about the Chinese, of course, because, you know, since it was sort of a more brunt nuclear deterrent strategy and they had fewer weapons, the assumption was that they didn't have enough capacity to go after military targets per se, and therefore cities would be more likely to be targets. But as their force is growing, you can imagine, and it, and it appears to be from some of their writings and, and the conversations we hear, that they're mo more focused or increasingly focused on, on sort of military targets specifically. Bases, supply lines, command and control systems, potentially leadership, um, but certainly military industry and these types of things. So, there. This is still an area where there's where they're developing, they're evolving. And we and there are discussions, of course, about what function should 
regional and limited scenario uh, scenario planning have and what should be the objective here because of course at the at, at the outset you you would imagine a planner would want them to sort of cause an adversary to stop and back down in their aggression but if that doesn't happen how do you have to scale up in order to try to convince them again uh, and if it doesn't work and and we get to sort of a full scale type of scenario do you have enough to inflict sufficient damage on the adversary that that you're confident that they will lose or certainly realize that there is enough uh, damage coming back at them that they will not want to go into a war with China. So the Chinese are playing with many of the same considerations that, that our planners and our strategists have been struggling with over the years. You know, what is the most appropriate posture? And what are the objectives? What are the functions that it has to serve? When do you have enough? When when do you ever have enough? <laughs> it, all these questions, there's always a debate about that. Hans, I noticed you were saying that Chinese planners are now taking into account questions that we have long struggled with when developing our nuclear capabilities. But you didn't mention the Russians. Is there something different about how Russian planners think about their nuclear weapons compared to how China thinks about them? Yes. When I say we, I think I, w- I was just thinking us out here in the rest of the world. But but the point is well taken, of course, that there are differences that are nuances between the new, various nuclear armed states, uh, how they think about their particular role and what their particular objective for nuclear weapons use is. And so that goes for the, for the Russians as well. And so right, we've seen a lot of discussion about theories that the Russians are getting more ready or willing, if you will, to accept nuclear risks and potentially use nuclear weapons earlier than previously. There is also a lot of discussion about whether that characterization is valid or to what extent. And because Russia, of course, has always had a large inventory of non-strategic forces that they obviously had plans for. And part of the plans were to use them earlier in a conflict than, than strategic forces. And that goes for the United States too, of course. We had a lot more emphasis on, on non-strategic forces back in the 80s, since the end of the Cold War. Our military has decided that that was less relevant and has phased out the overwhelming numbers of, of U.S. non-strategic forces. We're down to just a couple of hundred of gravity bombs that are left. And, th- and that's not because they didn't think regional scenarios were likely, but it's just that they thought, you know, we, we can do a lot of those regional scenarios with conventional capabilities where we previously required nuclear, but our conventional capability has evolved so much that, that we can serve some of those missions with that. And by the way, to the extent that nuclear is required in a regional scenario, we can use some of the strategic capabilities predominantly here, the, the air launch cruise missiles and gravity bombs and long-range strategic bombers to serve that function. So there are different ways of doing this. And so it's 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 a little, it's very difficult to sort of compare the countries directly in that sense because they come from different backgrounds and they have different interests in terms of what they think nuclear weapons have to serve. Thank you. Just taking a quick step back. You mentioned that Russia has a large inventory of non-strategic forces. What is the size of that inventory? How does that compare with the current size of U.S. and Chinese forces? Yeah, so Russia has an inventory of 
shorter range nuclear weapons. And that in common language, I guess, means everything that is not covered by the New START Treaty. <laughs> so that means everything from anti-ship cruise missiles, land attack cruise missiles, regional tactical bombers, short-range ballistic missiles, air defense systems, you name it. They have a lo- they have a large inventory of that compared to the United States. It is assumed that that number of warheads assigned to those types of forces today is on the order of one to 2,000 warheads. In comparison, the United States has, we think, something in the order of 200 tactical bombs left. So, you know, an order of magnitude difference between the United States and Russia. But as I said, this comes, this is a development that has happened because of, you know, fundamentally different ways of looking at military capabilities and the way that shorter range nuclear weapons have to serve. We also have to keep in mind here, U.S. borders with countries that could potentially require use of nuclear weapons are far, far away. Not so for Russia. Russia has a lot of its potential scenario for nuclear right up against its border. So they don't need long-range strategic nuclear forces to deal with some of those scenarios, whereas the United States is forced to sort of fly to the other side of the Pacific Ocean or the or the Atlantic Ocean to, to deal with those scenarios. And that's why tactical nuclear weapons or shorter systems, one of the reasons for why they have a greater role to serve in the Russian military. Another is that the Russian military traditionally has been, in the post-Cold War era, has been far less capable in its conventional capability than, than U.S. and NATO forces. And this is a development that is continuing. And therefore, Russian military strategists have been able to argue that they need, they need tactical nuclear weapons to some extent to compensate for that disparity. And this is a, this is a development that, that is going to intensify, I think, now after the, the Russian bad experience in Ukraine, where they have lost enormous amount of conventional capability. So I was thinking here for the next decade or two, we're probably going to see a Russian military that is, if not necessarily going to increase, then certainly at least continue to emphasize the role that nuclear weapons, including tactical nuclear weapons, serve in, in, in their strategy. China is very different because, like I said, they have had regional systems you know, all the way back to when they first acquired nuclear weapons. So this is not a, the DF-26 is not a new thing per se in Chinese, Chinese posture. They're building more of them, but it's basically continuing that regional deterrence policy. They're the only unknown, I would say, is, you know, how much emphasis they put on that role and what is it going to look like? Is it going to be more structured escalation scenarios, similar to what we've seen with the United States and Russia over the years? Or will we have some kind of Chinese version of it? It's really very opaque, I would say, and too hard really to to discuss sort of details on what the Chinese are thinking about that. When you mention structured escalation scenarios, are you talking about an escalation ladder in which one side moves up and the other side moves up the step two? Or are you talking about something else? I mean, it's it's basically a a sort of a a metaphor for how you step up the the, the pressure against an adversary. And so, you know, originally nuclear powers have few weapons and they sort of threaten with them. And it's sort of an all out blow, if you will. After some years, when they have nuclear weapons, their strategies will begin to argue that, 
well, this is not very credible because do you really believe that we will throw everything at the first instance we have to use nuclear weapons? And therefore, let's develop some lower levels of escalation with, with, with regional systems or so-called tactical systems uh, before we get to the Big Bang, so to speak. So that's a typical way of, of military strategists um, in nuclear weapon states to, to sort of argue about it. Unique, of course, was that is Britain. <laughs> in the United Kingdom, we've seen that after the end of the Cold War, they moved out of that way of planning, and they only have one system now, the sea-launched ballistic missiles on their submarines. All their gravity bombs for aircraft, whether they were land-based or sea-based, depth charges against submarines and what have you, all of those systems have been retired, so they're down to only one kind. So that's a unique posture among the nuclear armed states. Thank you. You mentioned earlier about how we might see Russia place more emphasis on use of nuclear weapons, as well as potentially the deployment of tactical nuclear weapons, as Russia faces severe conventional challenges in Ukraine. If Russia does this, how does this impact China? Do you see this as potentially further eroding China's no-first-use policy? Well, so let's let's start with no first use first. There is a lot of sort of both romanticism, but also overemphasis on no first use policies, in my view. No first use policy is not, it's not a lock. It's not a technical block for potential use of nuclear weapons. It's a statement. It's a political intention. China right now, despite its official no first use policy, has and has had for many decades, the ability to use nuclear weapons first is if it was necessary. You can always do that. And in fact, I don't think you can trust a no-first-use policy if there is a war. Because if there is a war, I think any country will, of course, take whatever action it needs to take uh, in order to avoid defeat. And whether you have nuclear no-first-use policy or not, I think it's, it's somewhat irrelevant. I think the value of a no-first-use policy or the impact of a no-first-use policy is more in terms of how it shapes a country's development of its force structure and its strategy. Because, of course, if it's a serious policy and they really mean it, it can manifest itself in certain different ways. For example, you might have a much more relaxed posture that doesn't have as significant requirements, military requirements, as you would have if you had a different kind of posture where you had a requirement to plan for using nuclear weapons first. You, it, it could be that it drives the size, that if you have a first strike policy, you need to have more weapons in order to, for that policy to be credible, et cetera. So, so that right now, there's a lot of emphasis on how is, how is China going to change its posture here because of its modernization? And your question, of course, Russian changes, will that influence that as well? And it is possible of course, that it can influence how confident they are that they don't have to have a first-use strategy. <laughs> you could imagine if they feel too pressured, that would be a policy that would that that would suffer. That might even disappear if they felt there were there were certain needs to plan for nuclear use early in a conflict. You can imagine. I mean, I've asked Chinese military officials about a potential scenario in which the United States uses its advanced conventional forces to take out a great number of its of the Chinese nuclear forces. 
And I, I asked them, you know, in that scenario, would you just sit there and let that happen and not use nuclear weapons? And they said, of course not. <laughs> we would defend us in any way we can. And so it may not be that the Chinese nuclear for, no first use policy is what people sometimes assume it is sort of a, a lock on what they can do with their nuclear forces. Russia and Chinese relations in the future could, of course, uh, develop in, in, in a way where they don't deepen this collaboration we see right now because of Russia's difficulties in Ukraine and Chinese interest in the Taiwan Strait and South China Sea and these types of uh, issues. They have a long border and they're still posturing nuclear forces along each other's border, assuming, I imagine, that you can imagine a potential scenario in the future in which they would need to use them against each other. So that's just to say, I think they're, they're covering their bets and see where things go. But I just, I just don't see new, no first use policy as so dramatic. I see, I think it's more first use policy that is dramatic, <laughs> you know, because it has to be translated into military capabilities to make your threat of potential first use credible. So, but again, there's also, of course, first use or no first use to what effect? I mean, if you have a first use policy, the United States has rejected, of course, a no first use policy for forever, for, for decades, and reserves the right to use nuclear weapons first if it wants to. Um, and, and what are those scenarios? How, what would they look like? And I think today, most of that scenario has to do with not, not nuking Russia first or nuking China first or something like that, but, but are more related to, to scenarios involving large biological attacks or large conventional attacks where something happens. And, uh, and, it's, and it's a smaller, much, much smaller subset of the nuclear strategy than the role of nuclear weapons against nuclear forces. Great. Thank you. I want to close by discussing arms control. The United States and China recently held arms control talks as part of the broader effort to restart communications across the board. Do you see anything substantive coming from these talks? And are you optimistic as we move forward in terms of either U.S.-China arms control talks or U.S.-China-Russia arms control talks? I think right now the biggest win is that they have them, uh, the fact that they're talking. That is a very important development and, and, and quite frankly, a break, breakthrough. They're, they seem to have a new mindset, at least on the need to have that kind of uh, dialogue, much less so on, on the substance of it. It's very difficult. It's very uncertain to what they want to accomplish. They have very different ideas about this. It is a broad set of conversations. It's not just, of course, nuclear by any means. So it is very likely that it could have some benefit in trying to manage some of the tension happening in the Taiwan Strait and South China Sea area, rules of the road, behavior, how to respond to crisis situations and misunderstandings, these types of things. So that, that's, I think, some of the, the most important of this. On that note, also very much so the fact that they're trying to reestablish military-to-military communication or military-to-military -military links. That is really, really important, obviously, uh, because those would be some of, not just for understanding what each other is doing, but, but also uh, handling scenarios or crises that could sort of blow up in each other's faces. 
So, so it's very good, but a nuclear, uh, it still remains to be seen because, you know, clearly the Chinese, at least so far, have, have signaled they're not interested. Their position over the years has always been, once you come down to our force levels, nuclear force levels, then we can talk. <laughs> but you guys, the Russians and the Americans, you still have significantly more nuclear weapons than we have. Ironically, here's where China's modernization might play out in, to some extent. Because on certain aspects of their nuclear force structure, they will be approaching the force structure the United States and Russia have on ICBMs, on intercontinental land-based ballistic missiles. We can already see that they're approaching a force structure that is equal to, if not a little greater, than that of the United States, either United States and, and, and Russia. So in that sense, they are approaching parity on that force numerical. So it could be that there is potential room for conversations about how to how to manage and structure those elements of the nuclear postures. We'll have to see, but it's I think the main news is the main good news is that they're having these conversations. Thank you. One final question for you, Hans. As we continue to monitor China's nuclear development, what is the most important thing that we should be focusing most of our attention on? Uh, well, I quite clearly think that it is about whether the Chinese thinking on nuclear weapons, the use of nuclear weapons, is moving more in a sort of warfighting direction, uh, where you have a broadening range of potential areas where nuclear weapons could come, play, come into play, uh, whether, they're, whether they think they're, they can do more, be more bold and risk-taking because they have a greater nuclear force, except how, how is it going to influence that? But certainly also in terms of people monitoring the Chinese, for God's sake, try to find out what do the Chinese say about this? You know, who who are the people in Chinese who can speak with authority on these matters? Where are they going? Do people who are in the expert community even know what the thinking is inside the planners community? So trying to get more insight to that aspect of it, I think, will be really, really important. And it seems to me that you do believe China is moving to view nuclear weapons as having a warfighting role. But we need more evidence and more analysis. I think it, it, it's possible that a part of it can go in that direction, yes. But, but again, we, the Chinese thinking about nuclear weapons is not the Soviet or the U.S. thinking about nuclear weapons necessarily. So we have to be, make sure that whatever they are doing, we are reading it. We are reading what they are doing, not what we think we recognize from from the way we and the Russians did it. Awesome! Thank you, Han, so much for this very in-depth conversation. Not only how China views its nuclear capabilities and what China might do, but also comparing China with the United States and Russia. Thanks. Great conversation. Thank you for having me. <laughs> 